Hi, this is Libby Heiser, Senior Editor of ClearanceJobs.com. Welcome to this episode of ClearedCast. The government continues to reframe who is a trusted worker as it celebrates the one-year anniversary of its Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative. Today, ClearedCast is speaking with Dan Conrad, Federal CTO at One Identity. One Identity provides identity and access management for both government and commercial organizations. How can organizations help identify risk and how can they keep the crown jewels safe? Those are the topics we're talking about on today's episode of ClearedCast. My first question here for you basically is in February, NCSD released the Trusted Workforce 2.0 framework. In your view, how is this new framework changing the definition of a trusted worker and why is a new policy framework even needed at all? Well, I mean, there's some varying degrees to the concept of the trusted worker, right? So we've lived with the clearance process that we've had for years and years, and just the sheer, maybe the sheer quantity of, you know, workers that are needed to be trusted has increased immensely. As we work with the government and our, you know, delivery contractors and folks that need to go in and do cleared work on behalf of our solutions, we deal with the concept that um, we have to find a cleared worker to do the job. And in in that vein, we may not be able to take the person that is possibly best with the technology to do the job, but we have to go find a cleared worker and then teach them the technology. So we would prefer that the cleared worker is of the utmost integrity and is you know the master of all things technology, but that's usually not the way it works. We don't want to say that we settle for the worker that is cleared, but in that case, that's what we're doing. We would like to take our technical expert and clear them at a fast rate and let them do the work for the for the government. And in that case, the government gets a better product. Oh, and you mentioned you know, that you've been in this industry, you know, had prior military experience with this. From that perspective, can you maybe speak to the security clearance issue and, and the need for this kind of policy change based on what your personal experience has been? I'm actually at the Insider Threat Summit in Monterey, and, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff has come up around, you know, examples in the past of bad actors ranging from, you know, simple things to elaborate patterns of trust that were violated. And then, you know, we look back with the 2020 hindsight vision and we think it should have been obvious. What I'm seeing is a push towards realizing that data ahead of time and maybe more data points that would affect an ongoing clearance validation as opposed to, you know, once every five years for your TS or once every 10 years for your secret. I think that would have changed the way the military operates as well. And I hope that the mentality of the folks that have the clearances and the people that are responsible for the people that hold the clearances would adjust as well in that if something bad happens in a career, that it's okay to document that so that over time you could see a pattern as opposed to assuming that every incident is a one-off especially in a military environment where people are maybe transitioning fairly frequently as opposed, you know, where you would have some, somebody sit in a position for 10 years and you would be able to see that behavior. In the military, you know, you may be in an assignment for two years and two years and two years. And in that time, your supervisors and your managers would cycle through at different rates. So you wouldn't really see a pattern of behavior that should be documented. A simple mishandling of, of material that was accidental or may appear to be accidental, and then maybe something tied back to financial that needed to be pointed out. It's one of those things where you look back over a five your period after something serious happens and it should have been obvious to you because now you're aggregating the information. Well, and that's something that's been discussed right now. So much of the process, it depends on self-reporting. It is relatively new even in policy. It kind of creates more repercussions for those who don't report on other people. I mean, you have those obligations, but it has never been exactly clear what FSOs are generally pretty clear on what they need to report. Coworkers, managers, supervisors, 
aren't necessarily clear. And those are the kind of people, your coworkers, particularly mm-hmm. the kind of people that probably see information that needs to be reported. And until right. recently, there hasn't been a, a clear process for doing that. And then so the process depends on somebody self-reporting. Well, how often is someone going to say, oh, hey, I've got this potentially disqualifying uh, financial issue. problem? Yeah, well, and then and then that even brings to the case of are are the kind of things that the, you're required to self-report are those the kind of things that are a security risk? I mean, I know that came up talking with NCSD about Trusted Workforce 2.0. Is drug use really an indicator that someone's not not a trusted worker? That's one of the 13 adjudicated criteria. Clearly, mm-hmm. ongoing drug use. If you're violating federal law and you're not willing to change. But if you've done drugs in the past, is that the best predictor that you're going to leak classified information? Not necessarily. And that's why one of the things they're looking at is actually saying, you know, either changing the adjudicative criteria, reducing the number of adjudicative criteria. You know, can you speak to that maybe? Is it time for the government to start looking at, hey, we have these particular 13 adjudicative guidelines that we use in making these determinations? Do we need to reduce those, change those, overhaul those? And maybe how does data play into that? Yeah, and I think that's very hard to build an if-then scenario, you know, speaking from a technology perspective where you could make automatic decisions based on that. At the end of the day, people are people. Because they're in a trusted position, we may have placed them in, you know, higher esteem. They're all making decisions based on the information that they have or even personal feelings. So at some point you need to include those personal feelings, but at some point you also need to, I'd like to see a very binary view of it, you know, if I'm the one responsible for making the decision. I think we work very hard to say yes to clearances that at the end of the day, there was 15 no's along the way, but we found a way to say yes. And that decision tree needs to be considered. It's kind of like looking back at the Snowden kind of concept when Obviously, we can. The, the hindsight is twenty twenty makes us all look ridiculous, and I hate to, you know keep bringing that up. We don't really know how that would have compared to the bulk of the data coming in at the same time. You know, were there other actors that looked just like Snowden that were that was normal behavior for all of these actors, or were they all you know all of a sudden Snowden is exfiltering or exfilling material out to foreign entities that we should have caught? If people are people at the end of the day, they're going to make mistakes and they're going to have opinions and they're going to have biases. And even when they know about something that should be reported, it's going to affect the way they report that information. So it's very difficult to draw 13 lines and say, check, 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 you know. Without those criteria, what, what do we have to make those well, decisions? How do we vet out those patterns of behavior? I don't think you need to rule out that information. I think it's good to have that information, but that information alone shouldn't be a disqualifying factor. You know, we're missing the opportunity to even view a lot of it if we don't have the information. There's been kind of a mentality through my 20 years of military service that if, you know, you had a financial issue or you know, you had a DUI or you had something that something that happened and you didn't want to report that that was going to actually affect your clearance when in reality that should be part of a bigger picture and not a single determining factor. Is there something the government can be doing? You know, you mentioned the soda case and again, hindsight is obviously 2020, but how do we vet mm-hmm. out these issues sooner than the current process requiring? I mean, we have continuous evaluation, obviously. I think that's a great step. I think the government is actually leaning towards continuous evaluation of just general user behavior. You know, kind of our specialty in our in our organization is vetting out what's unusual behavior for the insider threat perspective. You know, someone that's going to steal this Snowden type information. 
the, you know, the concept of building a profile around what looks like normal behavior and comparing that to maybe a behavior analytics tool before you make a decision. You know, our solutions will look at like, how does the administrator administer on a day-to-day basis? What are their normal behaviors? What are their hours? And then start to build a picture of what normal looks like for that person and people of that same type, you know, whether they're in the same group, in the same office, in the same location, the same type of access to data, the same types of data they should be accessing, and then building that picture, whether that's a regular user or that's a, you know, someone with elevated privileges. So we compare that, we can build that normal picture, and then that normal picture alone, a simple deviation from that, probably not going to be enough to disable their access and send up a red flag and send the security office running to their desk with handcuffs. But that can be part of that bigger picture. Yeah. How do we identify those people and then establish some steps or protocols? How much data do we need to bring in, though, to get to that level of normal? Like, do you do that across an organization, across a skill set or job title, across agency by agency? Kind of what does that look like in terms of data aggregation? From an administrator perspective, I've got a good view of that. I can tell you what it takes to look like a normal administrator from day to day. You know, I can give you about 30 days to give you a baseline normal. Um, And then, you know, over the next 30 days or so, I can start to show you slight variations from that. Now, that's not taking into account things like HR systems and, um, you know, anything that like a behavior analytics type tool would look at, which would be how much printing is the person doing? What's their normal activity? And, you know, even possibly tying into social media, if that ever becomes, you know, if we can do that without privacy concerns, you know. So, but from an administrator perspective, in 30 days, I can give you a realistic picture of what normal behavior would look like and then what a variation from that would be. And it can be anything from, keyboard patterns to what I really like is the data and the systems and the type of data that they're accessing then, you know, to prevent things like a Snowden incident. So, you know, Snowden specifically was an administrative type insider attack. We're kind of focused on that sort of thing, you know, in, within our company, but reaching outside of that, if you had, um, you know, what his normal administrator behavior type looked like uh, tied to, you know, a UEBA solution, which is a user entity behavior analytics would tie all of that together and give you a good picture. And, you know, someone should have been tapping on this guy's shoulder well before anything happened. And you bring up a good point. Do you think the privacy concerns are something, for me, again, I I think it's having worked for the Army and, and worked in, in government for a while, I'm always shocked when I hear from someone outside of government who has an expectation of privacy at their workplace. Why, no matter your industry, I mean, I, and IBM just had, you know, release that they said they can, they can predict with, I don't can't, can't remember now what they said, 95% accuracy that employees are going to leave before they do. And I'm like, well, they do that because they're, they're monitoring your behavior at work and you're, you know, in addition to mm-hmm. your timesheets and things like that, like literally if you're on a work machine in particular, they should kind of have an idea of what you're up to. But do you think the privacy, do you ever get pushback on that? Like that privacy, like this is something that employees are not, are going to be concerned about. I mean, for me, like social media, all of it, again, my expectation of privacy 
again, having worked in the government is, is perhaps lower. Debt. My expectation of privacy is zero. I don't understand how people can, especially when you're talking about privacy in a social media aspect where, you know, once you put it out there, it's there for everybody to see. How did you think that the government wouldn't be making decisions based on that information that you just published publicly? I don't get that. I don't get that mentality. I certainly understand that people would prefer to have, you know, lead two separate lives or or maybe if they choose not to mix work with their home life, that's certainly their choice. You know, coming from a military background, for me, your work life was your home life and vice versa. It really didn't make a whole lot of sense to try to separate that. I have heard discussing capabilities of things like behavior analytics and predictive analytics on user behavior from lawyers you know, sitting in the back of the room as we were briefing a CTO or somebody like that, that they were very concerned with the ability to take action based on predictive behavior, you know, even as far as increasing auditing on a person that may look like they're about to complete some kind of malicious act or might be based in our opinion, um, the most likely suspect to do something like export intellectual property. I mean, kind of our push is, you know, really back towards the administrators there's really not an expectation of privacy when you're exfiltering data off of your your systems or accessing things you know you're not supposed to do. You know, we build automation engines in here that will watch that data. You know, if that risk score elevates to you know, something you think is malicious, you can do something like freeze the session, which is nice because in a Snowden scenario, as he, you know, starts pulling data and accessing systems, he's not usually accessing outside of his normal day-to-day work. You don't have to look at event-driven data after the fact and say, guess what he did yesterday. We could actually freeze that session and pass that off to somebody for approval or even, you know, terminate the session which is kind of a preventive measure. And in the world of insider threat, the best report you have is no report at all. So you really only hear about it when it goes wrong. Speak to those kind of solutions and maybe specifically to what one identity does in this space. How are you able to identify those insider threats sooner? And then like you said, kind of how does this technology Mm -hmm. layer on top of existing systems so that you can see what's happening and then stop it? I'm actually doing a session here in about two hours on (laughs) responsible administration. So, you know, that's kind of the concept is to administer responsibly and spending 20 years plus as a system administrator, forcing me to be responsible in what you deem as responsible, you know, bruises my ego a little bit. At the end of the day, we all realize it's the right thing to do as opposed to letting people run around your network with ultimate privileges completely unaudited, which, you know, for me was, you know, a great ego boost when I received the top keys to the kingdom. Putting something in like privilege analytics or behavior biometrics to the administrator sessions and watching what they're doing, whether they know about it or not you know, is a great tool because you can see what they're doing in real time as opposed to looking back and and trying to figure out what happened yesterday after, you know, you lost a bunch of data or, you know, some sort of internal attack. And is this an area of like technological innovation? I feel like already the conversations I'm having around this obviously are better, you know, we're farther along now than we were, we were two years ago. Um, but are we still in kind of a reactive mode to saying, hey, this would happen, we had the Snowdens and this is what we do, or kind of how is the right. technology right. being being ahead of what the next issue is going to be? Yeah, that's the tricky part is if somebody knows a system's in place, are you simply going to walk around it? You know, if you tell your administrators they're being audited, they may find a way to do it without auditing. 
I've seen that, you know, you take a solution such as, you know, privileged privileged account management, privileged privileged analytics, and and you bring that into a customer and they implement it at maybe 75%. 75% of their systems and their accounts are now enrolled in this and the administrators are using this system to do their administration, but there's 25% of them that aren't. You know, that back door leaves you um, really vulnerable to somebody walking around your solution and operating unaudited. And unless you reach that 100% solution, you know, you're going to have probably as just as big a hole as you had before. It's just you've got, you know, four times as many people going through it. You know, administrators are a rare breed. They like their privileges. They like to operate without auditing, as we all do, because, again, they're just people. And, you know, whether they hold a clearance or not, they like to, you know, be trusted. If you put auditing in place, you're basically telling them they're not trusted. So there's a the tech space, we call this a politics and religion issue. So we need to socialize this and talk to them why auditing is a good thing if you're behaving well. So you shouldn't really have to worry about it. It's kind of like the the concept of, you know, who's listening in on your phone calls? And then you have to say, well, what are you saying that you're worried about? In this case, if you're not worried about what you're doing, you're really not worried about being audited. This has been a change in the way that the technology is managed that's been born out of the fact that we have this thing called insider threats now. And we have, you just have to layer new policies on top of that. And I get how if you've been working in the space for a decade and have earned a position of trust, you are wondering why the trust isn't there anymore. I mean, I see people like Harold Martin and I'm like, exactly. This is, what, this is why the trust can't yeah. be there. You can't, I mean, you can't have access to, to data that you don't need to have access to and, and right. without some kind of... Yeah auditing on top. We were implementing one of these solutions for one of our large government customers. They called us in as they were deploying it to basically brief their group of, you know, large group of administrators on how this works and, you know, how, you know, their lives were going to be slightly different and the level of security it provided. And we walked into a hornet's nest because they were not amused that, you know, they were now going to be audited and why aren't we trusted and I'll just, I'll just move around it. Here's how I'm going to get around it. Like we were not prepared for that briefing at all because it hadn't been, you know, socialized to them as a good thing. So, so your primary customer, are these direct government agencies, do you, um, are you providing this solution to other contractors to use on their systems or, no, this is this is for use worldwide. Um, you know, commercial customers, federal customers alike. From a technology perspective, it's the analytics piece is the new amazing piece to this. You know, the piece that gets me excited because it's just the coolest thing. And as an administrator, you know, if I'm running along and doing my thing, I would be very impressed with the capabilities of this solution and, the, and my ability to operate normally as I as close to normal as I always did before, but add a strong layer of security to that. Um, it fits well in the government space because, you know, the whole PIV and CAC requirements and things like that, and it reduces the overhead that goes along with that. It makes their life quite a bit easier, honestly. Um, in the commercial space, you know, the same concept can be there where all the administrators are actually being, um, you know, funneled through a choke point for auditing and, you know, without the inconvenience of knowing how they have to make 16 hops to do the simplest task because, you know, sometimes these, you know, the folks need to operate very quickly to, you know, fire calls and servers are down and things like that. And we don't want to make that job, you know, a difficult job any more difficult. So, but at the same time, we want to add that layer of security so that they feel secure and their management feels secure and the auditing block is checked at the same time. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Security Clearance Podcast. Please visit news.clearancejobs.com for more security clearance news, insights, and information. Have a great day.